Amen. Good morning, Gospel Hope family and highly cherished guests of our family. Let's uh, go before the Lord, if we could, just really quick and do exactly what we sang, and that is to hand these hearts over to the Lord. Father God, we come this morning and we do that. We surrender. We hand over our hearts, ask that you would be seated on their thrones, that you would be in control, Lord God, of their meditations, of their thoughts and the things that pass through them, that you would alleviate us, Lord God, from the fleeting thoughts and distractions of our season, the unmet Christmas list, um, the remaining task and cleaning up or decorating the house, all those things that try to pull away from, Lord God, the main thing, and that is to have an audience with you. Um, we ask, oh God, that you would uh, meet us in this moment. This is the moment that you've ordained according to, Lord God, your word for the teaching and exposition of Scripture, Lord God, that we might learn more of you and about you, but not just intellectually. We pray, oh God, that you would be with us in the preaching because it cannot happen effectively without you, that you would be with us in the hearing, oh God, so that our spiritual ears would be open and this wouldn't just be new data points of theology. We pray, oh God, that our faith would be raised and matured, Lord God, so that our belief in you would be expanded based on what we come to know from the scriptures. And we pray, oh God, that we would have equal commitment to exercising these truths and living them out so that they become a part of who we are and not just the stuff that we have stored in our heads. Um, we need you in all of these ways. And this was our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So if this is your 50th Sunday or if this is your first Sunday with us, you need to know that we are in a series entitled The Promised One, and we have been walking through various passages of Scripture that explore the Lord's promise of another one who would come. And we know who that one is, and that, is, that one is Jesus Christ. So we've been walking through several prophecies and promises of the Lord. Um, in order to kind of further develop this or flesh this out, we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, um, primarily on verse 2, verses 1 through 4, but primarily focused on verse 2. But before we go there, I want to ask a question. This is not a rhetorical one. It's, it's fully interactive. Who can remember the first time you saw yourself from multiple angles in a mirror? This is a weird question, but who can, who can remember that? If I could get some help from the, the team up top, let me show you a brief image. How many people recognize that scene? Over to your left and my right, you see this kind of full-bodied um, three-angle mirror. When I was growing up, we didn't have a mirror of that size and type in our home. The first place that I saw anything like that was in a department store. Uh, my grandmother had gone in the dressing room to uh, put on a new outfit, and I was put in the childhood version of solitary confinement, which is to sit in this little chair right outside the dressing room. And uh, as I was sitting there, I made the discovery of one of these mirrors one day. Now, they had always been around, but this was the first time that I had ever looked and really paid attention. I would see people standing in them and turn around and looking at themselves at various angles, but that was the stuff of adults. I didn't really know what they were doing other than just looking in the mirror. But this particular moment, I remember very distinctly uh, wanting to scoot out of my chair because I had been bribed with a reward that maybe if I sat still, be quiet, and didn't get into trouble, that I could maybe get a small bag of popcorn or maybe like 25 cents and I could go to one of those little twisty vending machines and get like a handful of cashews. I mean, right today, you got to amp it up and write it's got to be like iPad, but I just wanted popcorn and cashews. Um, so <laughs> nevertheless, I'm sitting there, and I see this massive set of mirrors, and I'm saying to myself, 
how, what can I get into but not get in trouble? Can I scoot out of my chair and go over to this thing before she finds out? I can hear her in there changing or doing whatever. I figure I got plenty of time to sneak over. So I go over to this mirror and, uh, and I stand on what would, I guess, kind of be like that little pedestal there. And I was amazed by something. Yeah, I didn't grow up with wolves. So yes, I had seen my reflection before, like not on a lake, like in an actual mirror. But I had never seen myself from like these three different angles at the same time. So I'm a really little kid. And so, you know, my primary orientation was having seen myself just from this one angle. But I look to my left and there's another me. I look to my right and there's another me. And, but here's the deal, because I've never seen myself full body from three different angles, I'm, a, I'm amazed because it's like, it almost looks like three different people because I'd never seen myself like from that side without having to turn. And then I made another discovery that if I turn another way, I could see myself from behind. I had never seen these four different views of me, only the first one. Now this might not sound like much to you. Maybe you're thinking like, man, pray for our pastor. This guy's got some serious stuff going on. Again, I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. But I go there and I see these three different views and I'm, I'm kind of testing my assumptions. Are those really me? Stick out my tongue, all three of these guys stick out their tongue. I wink, all three wink. I jump, all three jump. Raise my right hand, oh wait, wait where's it? You know what I mean? I'm kind of doing this thing, figuring out the mirrors or whatever. And it was fascinating. But the primary fascination was this. I was accustomed to seeing myself but as a kid, in the bathroom mirror, brushing my teeth only from the neck up because that's about how high the vanity was. And here I am, I've got this full view of myself from multiple angles. And I'd never seen that before. I was very acquainted with this view, but not all these other views. Why is this important? Why am I sharing with you this story? Not because I want a mirror for Christmas, right? But because there are many spaces in life where we grow so accustomed to a single perspective that the other perspectives almost look foreign to us. And so if you can wrap your mind around that, you're ready for today's message. Because I wanna help you appreciate through Micah chapter five, verse two, and some other passages, four different views of the Lord's mercy, four different perspectives of the Lord's mercy. As we've been talking about Jesus Christ as the promised one, what I believe you're going to see in today's passage is we look from Micah to Matthew, a quintessential passage in the prediction of Jesus' arrival as a Savior and the very town that he would be born in as, this, as the book of Matthew is home to over 67 different messianic fulfilled prophecies. And this was important because the book of Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish readership. And it was major for them both by way of genealogy, geography, uh, heritage, and all these other aspects to know that the person who was claiming to be the Christ was the real McCoy. And so Matthew chapter 2 and verses following that we'll get to later, in combination with Micah chapter 5 and 2, helped the nation to know that this one called Jesus was actually the promised one. The one that Jesus had promised, the one that the Lord had in times past, many days earlier, hundreds of years earlier, had promised would come. And it promised to come to do certain things. But I want you to take a look at me, uh, take a look with me in these particular passages because I believe as we see what the Lord is doing, that our appreciation of the Lord's mercy from multiple angles is going to be much approved or much improved. Why is this important? I believe that we, again, can grow accustomed to knowing God in very particular ways and grow stale in just only seeing him in that way 
and not be prepared to enjoy his mercy and his grace and his other attributes in different ways. But let's get some working definitions on the table. Number one, what is God's mercy? Now, mercy and grace, which extend from God's righteousness and goodness, are kind of like cousins. Some might even say they're Siamese twins. Because grace, as is a working definition, is us receiving what we do not deserve, right? We could not earn it. But mercy is us not receiving what we actually deserve, right? And so I want to talk a great deal about mercy. And if you're not careful, you'll think we're talking about grace. But I want us to clearly see four different vantage points, not competing, the same God, the same mercy, but four different vantage points of the Lord's mercy this morning through Micah chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles with you, in Micah chapter 5, you've already had it, heard, heard it read once, but I'd like to read it for you again with special emphasis on verse 2. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days." Now, this is an interesting promise to make at this particular point in scriptures, because if you know where we are in the grand narrative of the Ark of Redemption, Israel, <clears throat> Israel has sinned against the Lord. And there are several sins that Micah, as a prophet, comes to point out. One of them is injustice. Those that are high, those that are haughty. This is kind of a favorable season in Israel right now in terms of the material things. And there are those among them who are poor, who are being oppressed. And as always, in the background of Israel's life, when they tip into sin, they also entertain seasons of idolatry as they are affected by the other lands that live around them. Whenever you're reading the prophets, I want you to kind of always raise your antenna for four ideas. How is the prophet pointing out a very specific sin? Number two, what action steps is he calling for to move toward repentance? How exactly he warns them of God's impending judgment? And then also, how does he cultivate an appetite for the coming Savior? Every one of the prophets, whether major or minor, will always have these four ingredients because that's the prophet's job. Point out sin, appeal to them to come to repentance, tell them about the impending judgment of God, and to cultivate an appetite for the promised one who is going to come and bring ultimate salvation and restoration to the land. And so the book of Micah, while most of us may be familiar with this minor prophet because of this particular promise of the promised one, for, has several chapters of bad news for them because Micah is doing his job. He is pointing out their sin. They are not honoring God. They are not obeying him. They are not doing what he called them to do. They are not living up to their covenant relationship as God's people. You see, for God, sin and idolatry in particular were tantamount in his eyes to adultery because he viewed himself as, viewed them as his bride. And so the prophet comes to town and begins to point out all the things that Israel's doing wrong and how God is going to judge them. And in the middle of a terrible conversation that's quite weighty comes a promise that out of you who are being chided, God is going to bring one who will ultimately rule on his behalf. What does that tell us about our God? The first thing that it tells us is this is that the Lord does not give up even when his people repeatedly mess up. I mean, if you know where you are in the Bible, this, these are the minor prophets. 
It doesn't mean that their message is less than the major prophets. It simply means that these particular prophets wrote uh, fewer words than the major prophets. But in their writings, I mean, we're pretty late in the scriptures chronologically. And so we've heard this conversation since the days of the golden calf. God's people have been repeatedly messing up, and he's still willing to, to be the ride or die? He's still willing to, to hang out with them? He's still willing to, to be called their God, to be known among them, to have his reputation attached to them? Absolutely, yes. But why? Because our God has great mercy. In this moment, God is not giving Israel what they deserve. He's given them quite the opposite. And so the Lord, one of the first reflections of the Lord's mercy is that he does not give up even when his people repeatedly mess up. But this isn't the first time that God has shown this particular uh, kind of goodness toward his people. I mean, let's just go backwards in Scripture really quickly and think about the days of Adam and Eve. This was an act of willful sin that was committed by them in the garden, but God still, in approaching them both with judgment, clarity, and conviction, and pointing out what they did, still came in with a caveat of mercy. I'm going to ultimately address this. Here are some coats of skin so that we can still have fellowship. And I'm going to ultimately, according to Genesis 3.15, I'm going to ultimately crush the head of the one through a ruler who will come who actually set you up to do this. God is always moving toward his people when they mess up. He never gives up. When we look at the days of Abraham and Lot, I want you to remember this. Lot didn't necessarily sin by going to the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. The conversation was quite sensible. He came to, to Abraham and said, my herdmen and your herdmen are starting to have conflict. And so did our families don't uh, uh, find themselves at each other's throats. Why don't we just separate ourselves? And then Abraham says, okay, well, you choose whatever land you want to go to. And whatever way you choose, I'll choose the opposite way. <clears throat> and so Lot chose the plains of Mamre, where there was a, a good lands for his cattle and everything else to graze, and that region ended up being Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, later, Abraham had to go over and get Lot because that was not a very wise choice. You see, sometimes our need for mercy from God comes as a result of willful sin, like Adam and Eve. Other times, it comes from making poor choices or a lack of wisdom, like Lot did during his day. But God did not forego mercy in going to get him. If you remember the conversation between uh, Abraham and God, there was actually almost, it seems like, this divine negotiation that if you can find a certain number of people I'll, in the city, I'll save the whole city. But it all came down to God saying, okay, you can't find the requisite number of people for me to save the whole place. I'll at least save your nephew and his household. So God has always been in the business of mercy when his people have been repeatedly messing up. Think about this. He was prepared to save Sodom and Gomorrah if you could find as little as just a handful of people who were faithful. He was prepared to show mercy to the entire city. And this wasn't even his covenant people. God is indeed merciful. If you remember the days of Moses in Israel, Moses had been up the hill or on the mountain talking to God for a while. He comes down. The people have said, you know what? This guy isn't coming back. He's not going to lead us. Why don't we take off our jewelry, boil it down, and why don't we make for ourselves a golden calf? Why don't we boil it and pray to it? God says to Moses, you know what? I could just completely press control, alternate, delete, pull the computer out of the plug, rebuild it from scratch, and get me a brand new people. And Moses appeals and says, no, 
Let's not do that. And God does what? Shows mercy. In other words, the Lord does not give up even when his people repeatedly mess up. Thank you. But the beautiful thing about this is that the Lord's mercy, the Lord's mercy isn't, it is a communicable attribute, not just an incommunicable attribute. Do you understand the two? If you know what a communicable attribute is, raise your hand. A communicable attribute, kind of like a cold or sneeze, something that someone else can catch, a, a communicable attribute is one that not only does God have, but he also allows us to participate. Hear me carefully. So God is, one of his incommunicable attributes <clears throat> is his omnipresence, okay? He is the only one who can be everywhere all the time. We can't do that. We don't have that kind of capacity. That is an incommunicable attribute. We are beneficiaries of the fact that the Lord can be everywhere at all times, but we are not able to participate and do that ourselves. But mercy is a communicable attribute. It is one that God not only allows us to be beneficiaries of, but then he consequently calls us to be beacons of it. So while we experience God's mercy by way of reconciliation with him vertically, he calls us to also be people who show and advertise this mercy in our horizontal relationships with other people. Therefore, it is a communicable attribute. We're supposed to have this kind of mercy too. So this isn't just going to be story time about how awesome our God is. It's also going to turn so that we, on the other side of the coin, and showcase to us some attributes that we should also participate in. Let's look at Micah 5 and 2 one more time. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now this is interesting because Bethlehem Ephrathah is a tiny place, relatively nondescript, that many of us would not pay attention to geographically or theologically had this passage of Scripture not been on the pages of Scripture and been connected to the location out of which Jesus would come. And even Micah himself, or as the Lord is talking to his people through Micah, acknowledges that this region is incredibly little by way of comparison. But their tininess in the eyes of men, or their insignificance in the eyes of men, does not disqualify them from participating in the largeness of God's plan. Or we can put it this way, the Lord gives prowess where mankind only sees weakness. This is a historical pattern in God's movement toward his people. You see, the first time you would have heard the name Bethlehem or Ephrathah would have been when Samuel went to Jesse's house, that's David's dad, to find a king to replace Saul. When Samuel goes to Jesse's house, who is an Ephrathite, that means David is also an Ephrathite, he goes there and he says, well, uh, we are now entering the, you know, the draft for a new king, bring out your sons. First round draft pick, God says, no, I don't look at folks like that. Second round draft pick, no. The third son, no. Fourth son, no. It was not until the eighth round in the new king draft that David got called up from the miners of messing with sheep and said, there's got to be one more son. And sure enough, he gets called in the house, eighth round draft pick, right, from Ephrathah. So not only from a small town, but a small kid with no name and zero prowess. And hear me, and hear this. 
He was a ruddy boy, according to the scriptures. In the book of Samuel, the scriptures want us to know that David wasn't anything even special to look at in contrast to the other brothers. So much so that his father didn't even invite him to the draft party. When, when Samuel came looking for a king, he didn't even think about bringing David in the house just so he could sit on a stool in the back room while playing Fortnite and at least overhear the conversation. He left the kid outside. So it means that not even his dad thought a lot about David. And so this whole idea of being an Ephrathite is significant because where men sees weakness, the Lord actually comes and gives prowess. This isn't the only time that God has done this. If you follow the legacy of David, yes, a king after God's own heart, the scriptures do something that give Jehovah's Witnesses nightmares. It refers to David, who is the eighth-born son of Jesse, as the firstborn in God's eyes. This gives Jehovah's Witnesses nightmares because they often like to dial in on the passage in Colossians where it says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation to mean that he's the first one created and not understand that that means that he is the one who is preeminent by way of position. How can David be the firstborn unless it means he is one preeminent by position in his family in God's eyes? That's a little extra there for those of you that are involved in some apologetics. But this isn't the first time or the only time or the last time that God would give prowess where mankind sees weakness. The story of Gideon, Gideon in the Judges period. God's people have messed up once again. An angel shows up to Gideon and refers to him as a mighty man of valor and tells him to go and, and, and fight and get ready to redeem God's people. And Gideon is shaken and he says these words. How can I do this when my clan, Manasseh, is the smallest amongst the crew and I'm the least in my own household? And the angel reminds him, the Lord's going to be with you. Once again, the Lord gives prowess where mankind only sees weakness. Well, Ephrathah, likewise, is the least significant amongst the tribes. You could even hear it in the, in the public uh, appearances of Jesus. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Even Jesus' external appearance was thought to be one that necessarily meet the merits of a Messiah. Even Jesus, his disciples were disappointed in him in the way he showed up and handled himself because on the, just prior to the day of Pentecost, they wanted to know, all right, just before you leave and ascend, are you now going to transition the kingdom, God's kingdom, back over to us? Are we now going to have command over our own region? Remember this? And so the Lord gives prowess where mankind only sees weakness. This is yet another reflection of his mercy. I'll put it to you this way. <clears throat> our inability, our inability, all of them that we bring to the table, and we all bring our own garden variety, our inability is not a liability to the will of God. It is actually an opportunity for the glory of God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would put it this way. The Lord says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We are groomed, raised from, from, the, from our childhood up through our college days, our academic days, corporate marketplace. We are raised as a culture to only focus on where we have personal prowess and to try to do something different, either ignore our weaknesses depending on your philosophy or to try to definitely beef them up. But it is God and God alone who says, you know what, bring me those weaknesses because through them, I want to show my prowess. And I want to do things through you and with your life that cause people to see your good work that's come by me 
and glorify your Father that's in heaven. So your inability is never a liability to the will of God. It is always an opportunity for the glory of God. So cut yourself some slack. Have mercy on yourself in the areas where you see weak and you feel feeble and incapable. Let's kind of advance the ball a little bit. Now, the next time that this prophecy of Micah, from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, shows up on the scene is there in the book of Matthew. If you were here last week, we read a little bit of Matthew chapter 2 as we talked about the wise men who were looking for the star. Well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 shows up again as a quotation when King Herod asked about the location in which Jesus is to be born. Let's follow this story very carefully. Read it with a fine-tooth comb. In Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, I'll tell you where you need to pay attention, but watch this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem. Why? Because there's some competition. All Jerusalem with him. And he assembled, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the, you are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come the ruler who is a shepherd, who will be a shepherd of my people. Now listen to these words. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain what time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word that I too may come to worship him. Lies. He is not interested in worshiping him because if you read forward in Matthew chapter 2, what you find out is that King Herod issues a decree to kill all children who might have been born during that particular window. But guess what? Jesus' parents don't know about this. They don't know about the content of Herod's heart. And Jesus is just an infant. While he is the Savior, while he is God in the flesh, we see Jesus during his childhood obviously operating within the confines of the human condition. So it's quite honest to suggest that without there some kind of merciful intervention that even the baby Jesus would be at risk. So what do we learn from this? That the Lord is for us even when we are unaware of what is against us. The wise men did not know that Herod wanted to destroy the child. The scriptures teach us that they were warned not to go back. And Herod was furious when they didn't come back and tell them exactly where they had found Jesus. And so here it is again. The Lord is for us even when we're not aware of what is against us. The baby Jesus and his family, the Lord was for them, and they didn't even know the degree of danger that was against them. Well, the same thing applies to us. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. Hidden from what? When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, 
the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them. You see, ladies and gentlemen, in Christ, yes, we are hidden and protected from the lion who is roaming back and forth looking for whom he might devour. Yes, in Christ, we are hidden from the penalty of death. Yes, we are hidden from the power of sin. But according to the scriptures, we are also hidden from the wrath of God. We really don't know the full magnitude of God's mercy that we have experienced and felt and known in Christ. The principal risk against us is the wrath of God. We actually deserve the wrath of God. But in his mercy expressed through the person of Christ on all those who would be hidden in Christ, the Lord stays his mercy from, excuse me, stays his wrath. But guess who feels the wrath? The Christ. This is is, is incredible. Some Some of the greatest, here it is. Some of the greatest demonstrations of God's mercy will be found in the risk that missed us, not the risk that we managed. Oftentimes we talk about close calls because, you know, woo, you know, man, I'll never forget that time this happened. And if I had not been here or there, this thing almost happened to me. No, the greatest risk to ever miss us is that which the Lord was the one that managed, not that we managed. The Lord's mercy is great. So what does the Lord's mercy look like? He does not give up when his people mess up. He is uh, 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 showing prowess when mankind only sees weakness. He is for us when we are even totally ignorant and unaware of what is against us. My grandmother had, a, uh, had an adage that she would always say, and she said it mostly when I was a teenager, that the Lord looks out for babies and fools. I was like, what are you talking about? Okay, well, I'm not a baby, so, oh, I must be a fool, Right? But what she's talking about is how the Lord shows great mercy for those who either by way of the, 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 the weakness of your current condition, a baby, you just can't do any better, or the willful ignorance and you just have no idea how really ignorant and sinful you really are. You just have no idea how bad a decisions you're really, you don't really know the gravity of your decisions, but the Lord looks out for babies and fools. But the Bible would put it this way, we are hidden in Christ. We are hidden in him. Here's the beautiful thing that I would have us to know about this. Um, That the Lord has anticipated our need for him long before we ever appreciated our need for him. How do we see that? Go back to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are who are too little amongst the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, comma, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. Some of your Bibles will say from everlasting. In other words, this solution to our great problem, the Lord anticipated before we knew it was a problem. This is an expression of God's profound mercy, him anticipating our need before we even could fully appreciate our need for him. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we would have a ruler who would come. Here's God's anticipation again, a ruler that would come and crush the head of the serpent. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is a redeemer. He is the lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. Before we were fully aware of our need, before the world was infiltrated and influenced by sin, the scriptures say that the father, that the lamb had been slain before the foundation of the world. Psalm 139 and 16, uh, the, David, uh, the, the, the psalmist says, 
Lord, before my word, you saw my frame and you knew me. Before my words even became words, before they were even thoughts, you knew me altogether. So wait a minute. You knew the wickedness of my heart when it was at the thought level? When I was yet in the womb, you knew how wretched I would work and act? And you still decide to come to my rescue? That, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is an incredible show of mercy. If you think about how we show mercy in many contexts, we are most compelled to show mercy when we don't know the whole story. But the moment that we learn more about how a person found themselves on the streets, shoeless, unbathed, coatless, having squandered all their money, the moment we find out more about their personal story, we become less and less inclined to show mercy because you're like, well, you know, they've got to participate in their own rescue. They've got to do better. They've got to show some personal responsibility. I mean, the more and more we learn, the more and more times that a person messes up on our watch, we become less and less inclined to show them mercy. But look at your God. He knew to the nth degree. He knew to the, with, the, with the most minuscule detail every single sin that I would commit and collectively those that you would commit, that all of humanity would commit. Our Lord Jesus would be able to, to, to be on his way to the cross and say, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the other side is, forgive them, and I know fully what they are doing. That's mercy. And it is a communicable attribute. It's not just something that from the, from the deep bowels of his omnipotence. And we just get a chance to just glow and bask in and go, oh my goodness, worthy is the lamb. Yeah, and accountable is the you. And me. So here we are. Christ is the mercy of God in this way. He is on the cross shouldering our full wickedness while fully shielding us from the wrath of God. You understand that as Christ is dying in our place, he isn't just taking on the guilt of our sin, he is also taking on the wrath of God that was supposed to be on us. The cross of Christ is the absolute typification of mercy. And we are called to be like Christ. And so, throughout the history of Scripture, the Lord has given us multiple reflections of his mercy. The first, he does not give up even when we mess up. The second, he, he sees prowess and gives prowess even when others around us only see weakness. Number three, he is for us even when we are not aware of the great risk that is against us. And number four, he has anticipated our need for him long before we ever appreciated our need from, for him. This is mercy. This is us getting a chance to look at the three-way mirror of God's word and, and, and realize that mercy isn't just a great theological vocabulary word, but, oh, wait a minute, that's me over there. Oh, wait, that's me. I'm both a beneficiary of mercy and I'm called to be a beacon of mercy in the lives of others. Here's what I'd like to share with you. Two very simple points of application, and we are done. Repent. How can we repent in light of this? We can repent in, in light of how we answer this question. 
Who are you currently holding hostage to earn your mercy? Who in your life deserves mercy and you're waiting for their performance to match? Who? Hmm? Is it the relative that always gets on your nerve? You can't stand to see their face. You're headed there to their house for Christmas, and every time they open the door, they have a spiritual gift for pointing out everything you did wrong and how much weight you've gained since the last family gathering. And you have grown to, to silently, slowly, but systematically despise them. Or perhaps it's the person on the job who took the job that you thought was supposed to be the your job, and guess what? They are now your boss, and you've decided to be the employee from hell that will work in such a way where you're not going to get yourself fired, but you're going to make leading you a living nightmare. Perhaps, perhaps, you're not showing yourself any mercy. You're operating under this impression that you somehow have to do something before God to prove that you're worthy when the real proof of worthiness of mercy does not exist. It is Jesus Christ, if you place your faith in him, this is what qualifies us for the mercy of God, not anything that you can do. Perhaps you need to show you some mercy. But don't let it stop there because the greatest commandment is to not only love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but to love others as you would love yourself. So if you're prepared to give yourself some of that mercy, make sure we are dispatching it also into the lives of others. This is an opportunity for repentance. A second opportunity is in our gospel sharing. How can we reproduce this in the lives of others? Has it been hard for you to show mercy? maybe in some of your relationships. And maybe rather than walking into a conversation with kind of a, a cold opening on the gospel, you can begin sharing a story about how you've had to show mercy and what compelled you to show that mercy was the fact that you had been shown much mercy. Talking about how God and what he has done on your behalf in light of all your sin and your constant messing up. You see, mercy was never meant to be a hall pass for continued sin, but to compel our hearts to come back to him in incredible worship. This is a great, if you're prepared to be kind of open up the medicine cabinet of your life and show people how Christ and how the Lord is working on you, sharing the gospel, I won't call it becomes easy, it becomes incredibly more natural. Because people say, oh, okay, now you're not pushing me a pamphlet or repeating some words that are obviously not yours, now you're talking to me about how this gospel is radically rearranging your heart. Now you have my attention. And so these are your two points of application. Again, repent where you're holding someone hostage who, who you're waiting for them to pull themselves up by their moral, emotional bootstraps and earn that mercy and then re reproduce it in the lives of others. Tell the story of how you've received it and how you've extended it. And let that be an advertisement of how your God is the only one who can do it. He's the best mercy shower that there is. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you for the fact that you are a God of infinite mercy. But your mercy doesn't make you weak. You're also a God of incredible accountability. And as you call your people in Israel and Judah, and, 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 and Judah, Lord God, you call your people to show both strength, accountability, and mercy, to be serious, not to be weak, but to show mercy toward those that are in a position of less than. And then you, you model it before us in the promise of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this, and we beg, O oh God, 
that as we look squarely upon and enjoy the benefits of the promised one, who is a complete picture of your mercy, that we would be compelled to show it to others accordingly. Lord God, make our Christmas season all the more richer because we didn't just run through the scriptures and just say, oh, look, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Amen. But Lord God, let our Christmas be richer because we see the Christmas season as a profound display of your manifold mercy. Help us, Lord, where this is hard for us. These can be easy words to say. These can be easy things to comprehend, but these can be incredibly hard things to actually reproduce in our lives toward others who we know with every fiber of our being do not deserve it. But oh God, in that moment, remind us of how much we also did not deserve it so that that wouldn't be an obstacle for us showing it. Meet with us, O oh God, in our obedience that we would know an additional degree of fellowship from your Holy Spirit, a sweetness that only you can bring as we obey you in the showing of mercy and in the sharing of mercy with others. I pray, O oh God, for the person who's sitting here today that has never known your mercy in a relational way. Yes, you caused the sun to rise and to set on both the, the beloved and also, Lord God, on the wicked, but... Lord God, for that person who's sitting here today and they're contemplating the depth of your great mercy in Christ, the lights are going on for the first time. I pray, oh God, that you would meet with them in that space. Call them to a place of placing faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died in their place on the cross, shouldering the wrath that should have been all of ours. Enliven our faith to do exactly that. Fresh faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.